So um, today I'm joined by Rebecca Gonzalez Suarez um, from um, CERN. So welcome uh, on the podcast, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and uh, looking at your LinkedIn profile, it says you're the top Quark analysis group convener, um, which sounds like you, you try to herd cats, but I don't know if that's, if that's true. What do you, what, do you what, what does a top Quark analysis, analysis group convener actually do? Actually, it is really very much like like hoarding cats. But uh, I mean, uh, it's um, the, the different phys- parts of the physics program of uh, the big collaborations of the two big experiments of the LHC and also to some level also to, to the other experiments that are a little bit smaller is separated by topics. Right, because I mean, we are looking for so many things that uh, it's not really possible to to coordinate everything under the under just one group. So um, the people that are uh, developing their research, looking for top quarks and mm-hmm. for any kind of thing related to that, those are working in my group, the one that I'm coordinating since uh, since September last year until September 2018. Mm-hmm. We are usually two coordinators and we overlap during one year. So in this uh, September, I, I will get a different co-coordinator. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting job. It's, uh, it's full of challenges. There is a lot of people, but I have to say that the top group is really extremely good. I have uh, work also within the, the Higgs group in the, in the same collaboration and also collaborated a bit with other and I can say that people in the top group are really at the highest possible level. They, they do very good physics. Mm-hmm. So um, let's just talk about your journey then to, to CERN <laughs> and how you got here. Um, mm-hmm. So you're, you're born in Spain, in the north of Spain, I see by, well, I assume that by your, where you went to university or? or yeah, yeah that's, that's correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I was born in Gijón. That is, uh, is one town in the, in the Atlantic coast in the north. And I went to the university in Oviedo, that is very close by. And then I got my PhD in Santander, that is still in the north of Spain. So you are completely correct. So um, we know that there is a definite gender bias uh, in terms of maths and physics, and that girls are constantly underrated um, by teachers of their of their maths ability. Um, and this leads to a subsequent uh, underrepresentation in maths and physics fields. Um, by women. So, um, what's the, your experience at CERN? Is is that uh, there's still a, a big underrepresentation of uh, female scientists within physics? CERN is uh, is starting to to do better right now, but there is still a very long way ahead, right? I mean, CERN is an international institution, so it basically echoes what happens in the different countries, and with some exceptions, of course, in general, this is this is still the case. But you can definitely see a trend. I mean, of course, there are up and downs, right? I mean, there are years that you will get many more PhD students that are women. There are there are years that you get less. But at the end, overall, I mean, I've been working in in high energy physics for ten years, and I see a I see a positive trend. And I I think if we continue working towards it, it's it's gonna happen that this is unstoppable, and we will get more and more women all the time. So I am optimistic on that. And, and what about yourself when you, um, you know, you were going through your education? Um, what was it like studying <laughs> physics as a woman uh, at the beginning? Um, because you've been doing this 10 years now, and you're seeing positive trends. But I'm sure when you first started, um, you know, some of the idealism of youth probably got battered <laughs> out of you at the beginning, I'm sure. 
Oh yeah, I mean, I have, I mean, I have a lot of stories about it, right? I mean, when I when I started the physics in the university in Spain, because in in Spain you basically choose the topic from the start and then you go through it. It's not like in other countries. So when I started physics, uh, it it didn't have any kind of because it was an exam in Spain before uh, entering college that mm-hmm. gives us some kind of points that uh, some some uh, different colleges use for letting you in or things like that. And physics didn't have any kind of cut, will upset everybody because it's, you know, it's, it's not so popular as a, <laughs> as a medicine will be or as a, any of the fancy engineers. And, and I, I entered the first thanks to the, the grades that I had from high school and, and from this exam in particular. And still, the second day in, in the university, I got three, three guys coming to tell me if they could help me to to work in in the assignments that we were getting and to me that was extremely insulting because they yes assume that i needed their help and these kind of things are repeated over and over and i mean when you don't notice them it's all right but then when you start noticing them it becomes impossible to ignore that there is it's clearly an obvious bias in the mind of the people that affects the way that, that, that you develop yourself later, right? Because when people believe that you can do everything, then there is a very high chance that you will do everything. But when people don't really put any hope on you, it's much easier to just give up because, you know, it's, it's the way it is, right? And, and that, that's extremely discouraging. I mean, prior entering the university, I never really had problems. I, I grew up in a family that is extremely open and, and forward. I was never limited by my parents, for example. I was never limited by my, my close family. I, I was not particularly limited at school. High school, the, it was, well, a little bit average for everybody. But it was in the university when I started realizing this. And even though when we started, we were many and there were many women. At the very end, in my particular uh, um, line of physics, I, I did fundamental physics. I, I was the only girl of the five people that we finished that year. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that's a very, but anyway, I was the first. But still, it's a, you know, we were not many, and still you could see that we were not really at the same amount. Mm-hmm. And so, of the, the others that kind of dropped out, did they, any of them mentioned that they were dropping out because of the, um, uh, of the problems that are faced by women in STEM, um, or or was it not so implicit? So the thing is that uh, when when these kind of things get into you, most of the times you don't really notice. Mm. And there is a, I mean, I, I have noticed as well within all these years that there is much more dialogue open within like young people on on feminist issues and of gender issues in general than what it was at the time. I, I mean, at the time, we were not even discussing this particularly much. And, you know, it's, it, it, it probably you don't really notice what is pushing you away, right? Mm-hmm. It's in the same way that's, uh, that I have to hear a lot of times that there are many women that quit physics because they want to have a family. It even comes from, from, from women sometimes. And it's like, I see all the men in physics and most of them have a family. And nobody associates this with leaving the field. And what is implicit behind this kind of statement, that is that the main caregiver for children is going to be the woman no matter what, is something that we are not yet ready to discuss at all the levels. Mm-hmm. And probably these women that are leaving physics to have a family, they are not thinking, hey, wh- why am I supposed to take care of the, of the kids alone, right? 
Why is this supposed to be my responsibility specifically? Why I have to sacrifice my career? Why my career is not the priority? These are the kind of questions that are very hard to ask to yourself and uh, it's, uh, it's also difficult to bring later on. So I think uh, I, I have not found uh, an example of a woman that say, okay, I quit because this is a misogynistic environment. But I, I can definitely see how the misogynistic environment makes pushes people out. Not only women, also also pushes out LGBT people that yeah. we don't, we don't see so much, and we should see more statistically, right? Yeah. Or or people from different backgrounds. When you are here at CERN, most of the people uh, come from families that already had an education, that already had uh, important careers, and like many different fields in science, technology, in medicine. You don't find people that come from farming families. I mean, you might find one. And this is also telling you something, that there are, you know, the lack of opportunities that certain areas of society is, uh, is having is, is something that we are also being affected by, but we don't really think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, um, yeah, is, is that, it's very difficult to, um, to overcome some of those issues, or even ask that, ask some of those questions, you know, about, um, you know, women taking career breaks to, to go on to to um, to raise family. It's not even suggested that they can take a career break because sometimes, even the fact that they may have a an organisation that supports them and says, mm-hmm. okay, you can take a career break on a family, but even then, the the impression when they come back, they have a hole in their CV, and especially in science with the the competitive nature of it and the fact that you have to keep publishing, you then have this gap, um, mm-hmm. which which you can't kind of catch up because you've, you've had some time off and you're penalised it from later on. And I'm sure a lot of women yeah. who go into science choose not to have families because they know, even if they do um, take time off and come back, that they can then, um, uh, that mm-hmm. it's still going to be penalised for them later on down in their careers. Yeah, I think that's, that's very clear, especially if you look at... Uh... Um, more senior women in in STEM fields, and it's much more obvious to see that those like let's say more pioneer, they had less children, of course, than, than the younger. And it, but but you can also see that, for example, when you have countries like Sweden, that is definitely behind to have an equal situation with respect to children and and having a, a good work family balance. You can definitely see that there are more women in the in in the field, and they have more children than. In other countries, I mean, it's, it makes things very difficult, especially when you really make that all the penalizations, let's say, within your career that are associated to have a family, they only fall on the woman. That is really definitely one of the of the key parts of the problem. Because if we were, let's say, again, quote unquote, penalizing everybody in the same way, then it should be a much more unifying thing. Because most of the people above a certain age have children, right? I mean, this is a very common thing. Yeah. So it will be something much much better accepted, let's say, if we were all having the same kind of of, of limitations. Mm-hmm. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about leadership in in STEM and, and on two ways, because um, I mean, I I focus coaching um, people in STEM careers, so it's not just mm-hmm. scientists, but it's everybody working in technology and uh, and science. And the reason I did that is because um, I've worked with in research programs that have been funded by the commission for um, the past 10 years. And I always saw a lack of leadership um, uh, qualities across, you know, regardless of the gender. So from my perspective, um, I see, I see there's two issues. There's a lack of leadership qualities 
for people in science. And I think generally because people are picked to be leaders based on their um, academic background and their mm. achievements rather than that, than on their, their leadership qualities. So that you've got that one issue, but then you've got the second issue that then women in leadership positions uh, in science are very, uh, are not that many by, you know, from what I've seen in, in my own experience. So what are your thoughts on, on those two, two issues um, within the science field? Okay, so the, the first issue, I 100% agree with you. I think this is something extremely obvious as soon as you, as, as you get that, at the very least from my point of view in, in particle physics, but I, I think indeed it's, it's, it's probably the case everywhere, that there is an extremely large difference between doing your own analysis and uh, trying to figure out how a particle behaves or measure a quantity and to organize people doing it. Yeah. And uh, we, we tend to believe the leadership uh, positions should be some kind of prizes to people that uh, that do things well. But sometimes we are sabotaging the, <laughs> the physics plan in general by, yes, uh, appointing people into leadership positions that are making things harder. At the LHC, I think in particular, this gets a bit diluted in the fact that we are so many mm-hmm. that by, by sheer amount of people, things will will continue progressing right there will always be somebody driving it but i i can see every day that we could definitely benefit for a more structured leadership of course we are doing science is not like in a company that this is something that you can propose from the top down in the terms of science you everybody is collaborating in the basis of everybody being equal we should always have freedom for developing our research so we really need to separate coordination from telling somebody what to do which is not the right way to go in physics, but it's obvious that, that that we are definitely lacking good leadership in a, let's say, more efficient way. I mean, we might have very inspirational figures and we might have people that know a lot about physics and that are like extremely good to put forward ideas. But then in terms of coordination and organization, we, we, we really need to, to work a little bit more on, on it because we mostly learn on the job, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like we, we get courses or, or anything as a company would do. But uh, then going to the to the particular case of women, it's a, it's uh, it's very difficult for women to get into into leadership position. Well, not very, but it's more difficult because people are much less ready to listen to you when you are a woman. This comes from, of course, <laughs> implicit bias that. Uh, most of people don't really want to even check. And since people are not ready to listen to you, it you have to really be doubly pushing in order to get there, right? I, I have an example of uh, working with, uh, with a PhD students. So I had worked with one uh, female PhD student that is extremely good. I mean, she can get everything done. It's, it's very good. And at the same time, it's super nice. And it looks, I mean, she looks very girly and she's super friendly and she has all these typical associated to feminine qualities, right? Yeah. And then I have worked with this PhD student that is, is a man and he looks like a, yes, any regular young man, but sporty and healthy. And I already noticed from the start, the way that people relate to them is that they are, they are ready to, to talk to her like she is less smart when she is much smarter than him <laughs> and him that is not particularly bright, he gets much more, like uh, people are much more ready to give him time and to assume that he knows much more than he does. Yeah. So already by this, I mean, they are not even related to each other. They, they don't even know each other. But 
I, I can notice this and I can see when, when a man talks in a room the way that is that is understood and I can see how many times, you know, women are dismissed as, you know, this one is crazy or whatever and these kind of things is the things that we need to, to ask ourselves why we are doing it. Then in particular, from my personal point of view, I've been having leadership, posi- leadership positions since 2013 or so. I've been, uh, I've been very lucky because the collaboration has always... Uh, appointed me to, to different areas and for me that's great. I'm not so sure about my own leadership qualities but uh, I, I find that in, from my side I really cannot complain that they really have always picked me up but in that in the sense of uh, for example choosing uh, new new people from being uh, from being conveners of a physical group for example I've heard things like okay yeah in this group there is already a woman that is uh, that is uh, the convener getting a second woman to, to be with her, that will be over-representing. And it's like, in this group, this is the first woman that has been. It's been 11 years, and this is the first. And now we have plenty of candidates that are women that could do this. And you want to penalize them on top of that, yes, because they are women, <laughs> because you think that it's over-representing. Yes. Uh, this kind of, I mean, these kind of things happen, and, and we definitely need to check our own prejudices, and it would be really good if, if we could get educated on these kind of issues, because... Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's, that's incredulous at some, at some level, isn't it, that, that people would say that, it, you know, it's the first woman in a number of years, 11 years, and then, and then you know... Well, two is too many because um, it's, know, a, it's completely <laughs> mental. Talking about cooking and stuff, you know, and we'll never yeah. that. That's generally the the impression, isn't it? The, uh, yeah, that's, that's, it's you have to laugh at it at some level because otherwise you you would you'd cry. I think yeah, that, exactly. That, but uh, but the problem is that this person that does this for sure doesn't believe that has any kind of bias, right? I mean, it's yeah. a person that I'm hundred percent. I'm pretty sure that he thinks that he's all up for women and that he's all up for everybody being represented. But you know, then when the situation comes, is when you find your own uh, little mental dispositives that you are not questioning that are making you definitely work against women inside. Doing this podcast or, or sort of going down this route, I mean, I did an implicit bias um, uh, test and, and, you know, I thought I was, obviously, I, you know, I thought, well, I'm a, I'm a modern man, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a feminist in, in, as well, so, but of course, you know, I came out of having, I had a bias against um, women in, uh, in work and women in the workplace and I had that, that implicit gender bias that was there. Um, and I, you know, I knew that it was probably going to be there. Um, I'm, I'm kind of self-aware enough or rational enough to understand that, yeah, it's going to, it's going to be there. But it was still a, a little bit of a, of a shock to, to know that. And, you know, I'm constantly now trying to, you know, just reset my, my brain and think about things in a different way and, and challenge that perspective that, that I have. Um, even though, you know, I was brought up um, by my mother. My father died when I was young. So, um, and so you know i had her as a role model she was my only role model i was brought up by women um but still i still had that bias that that was there that um that was there from a cultural point of view and i think challenging that bias is difficult for everybody even if you're open to challenging it Um, exactly i mean i i can completely relate with you because the first time i did one of this of this uh test bias i I of course had it as well right and it's always so disappointing it's like oh 
Yeah, it's, it's like a very frustrating thing, but I am aware of it. It's uh, in, in the same way as you are, right? I mean, we're working towards it. We understand that it's something cultural, that it, it comes from, you know, it's not something we invented. It's something that we inherit. So it's up to us also to break it. So the first part is to, yes, assume it, to know that you have it, and then you can work from it. But when you are just blind to it and you just tell the people that, of course, you are uh, you are pro-woman, there is absolutely no bias on you, then, then is when you have a problem, when you cannot question yourself. So, yeah. so um, you, you said that, you know, you, you've held leadership positions for a couple of years. Um, so what do you think your kind of biggest challenges are as a leader? Where do you feel most challenged um, when you're leading people? Uh, it's a, I mean, there are many small things, so it's, it's not really a, a, a big, a big term. I think, uh, I believe on, uh, on, on a kind of, um, leadership that allows the people to grow within. So I really don't want to tell people what to do. I just want to know what are the ideas, what are the ideas, the ideas and how, how, uh, how we can make them work, right? What are the things they need? What are the resources they need? What are the things that are stopping them? And I'm, I'm trying to work in that way. And I, I want to, to listen to people and, and I want to, yes, allow the people within my group to do the things they want to. And if there are conflicts between two groups, I, I, I want these conflicts to, yes, not, not have two people fighting, but allow them to discuss, to find a way that works for everybody. So this is the kind of, of, of points that I, I try to do. But still, when you, when you are coordinating a big group, there are a lot of personal issues that appear that, that you would have never expected, right? There is, there is people that are going to treat you in a different way. There is people that are going to try to get benefits from themselves in a, in a way that is not open to everybody else. And this kind of more personal issues are the most difficult to handle from my side. And of course, the fact that I always feel that I don't know enough. And I know that there is uh, this, this classical thing of the imposter syndrome. I try not to have it, but this sometimes it's very hard, even though I'm, I have a, a, a good self image and, and I'm very optimistic and I, I never try to play myself down. It's extremely hard to not feel it. Right. Yeah. Especially in in an environment when you when you see that there is so much physics going on and, and that people know so much about things and but I'm trying to take it in a way of okay this is my time to learn I don't have to know everything mm-hmm. and maybe I know more than I think I do but it's still hard and it's a lot of work also within myself yeah. so yeah but I mean you're going about it the right way I, mean, I, I think you know that I think for science especially. I mean, there's no one set leadership style anyway, because if there was, then we'd be having cookie, <laughs> cookie cutter um, versions of everybody. And I think you have to try and be authentic as possible. But to mm-hmm. be authentic, you really have to know yourself well. And it sounds like, you know, you know yourself well, so that's good. But then within science, I think the best kind of leadership, um, not styles, but kind of behaviors and methods is that kind of collaboration and, and dialogue and getting people to talk to each other and, and um, managing the conflicts a bit better because you you know, science isn't quite as hierarchical as kind of businesses when it comes to leadership. Mm-hmm. It is about collaboration. It is about moving teams together and influencing people without the kind of uh, without the authority or any kind of formal authority um, mm-hmm. that you have. So, yeah, I would say uh, it. You know, you're probably on the right track, but uh, it's difficult to manage people, and and that's the thing that people don't get about leadership or management is you know. It's about the human emotion that you've got to manage those people. You've got to manage their emotions. Um, 
to, to get them to work well. That is very true. So I always kind of finish the podcast asking people about their, you know, their, their best sort of advice they have for, for other women in STEM coming up and, and other leaders, female leaders in STEM. So what is your best advice for those? Hmm. It's, a, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, um, the advice that I will give is that, you know, don't believe anybody that tells you that you cannot do something because, I mean, nobody really knows how much you can do, right? Mm. Or actually even better, if somebody tells you that you cannot do something, the right way is to just challenge it and show that you actually can. To not ignore the fact that people will have biases because this will definitely break your heart if you think that you are going to to a, a field of science and, and people are going to be completely open-minded and that everybody will be exactly the same. Know that there is going to be some work to do. But it's also going to be worthy and that you are going to find a lot of people that are going to be completely, you know, along the same lines as you are. And that this is going to be like one of the best parts of the of the job and not say sorry, because I, I see all the time women in meetings basically starting any kind of a, of a statement by saying, sorry, if this is silly or Sorry that I don't understand this. And you don't see men doing that. And it's like, no, this is not silly. This is a good question. Don't do it. There is no sorry to be had. You can say sorry if you have run over somebody with a car. That's a moment to say sorry. But for having an opinion, you should not apologize. I mean, it's, you also should not go there like a, you know, like a wrecking ball. But you should you should own your things. And, and it's, you know, if somebody is not happy that you have an opinion, it's not your problem. It's theirs. Yeah. So... <laughs> that's uh, a thing that I, I, I care about. It's like, I, no, I see, I see that so much though in, in my coaching um, and, mm. and women that have that who, who say, you know, I, I keep saying sorry all the time and I, I'm afraid to speak up. And I'm, you know, one of my, my tips is like, okay, when you feel the need to say sorry, think about how you could thank them instead. So, you know, <laughs> oh, thank that's you, good. Thank you for listening or thank you for your time or thank you know, thank them for what you want from them. Uh, that was so, very good. You know, saying, that's a very good sorry. tip. Um, because it just swaps the dynamic around a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. One thing we didn't talk about, we'll talk about now, is Lonely Chairs. Because uh, <laughs> you you run another little blog called Lonely Chairs. Um, at oh, the, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the new post that you put up is a nice little red chair. Uh, <laughs> so just quickly tell me about that. Because you've got some like 20,000 followers, I read, <laughs> on, this, on this blog. Yes, it it was very crazy. I mean, I like to take pictures and I really like CERN. I mean, uh, I I don't know if you've been. I mean, you definitely should if you have the opportunity. And uh, CERN is very very interesting place because it it, it was uh, it was constructed in 1954. And in order to do the kind of science we do today that is completely cutting edge, we need to definitely reuse all the resources as much as we can. Mm. So we have a lot of old buildings. We have a lot of old equipment all workshops and everything that still works we keep because it's our way of saving money, which I think is great. I mean, I think that's a great example of CERN. We also have new things as well. And for some reason, you start finding chairs everywhere. I mean, people bring out the chair for a meeting. People bring out the chair to talk to somebody outside. People bring out the chair for whatever. And they stay there because there is this kind of freedom because you don't know who's the one that owns the chair or you don't know whatever. So you leave it there. And all over the place at CERN you find lonely chairs and I like to take pictures of them because I think it shows also a part of CERN that we not always show to the visitors 
and also give some kind of uh, an inside view over our rooms, the places where we have the the experiments, the places where we spend some some time just disconnecting. And I started doing these pictures because a friend was, I mean, I, I was doing the pictures and a friend was like, oh, you need to put them in a blog. And I put them in a blog. And a lot of people from CERN started following the first two days. And it became some kind of mini viral at some point. And then I, I my my followers grew until about 20,000. And they have been staying like this. And it's going to be almost four years. And I continue finding chairs. So I will continue updating until I run out of them. It's uh, it's a kind of a nice project. No, I think it is a nice project because you're right. It kind of shows, you know, because I can imagine, you know, cause I, I didn't go into science, but I can imagine in my, um, that the, a lot of science is, is kind of sat around doing nothing, waiting for something to happen. So in my head, when I'm looking at these, I'm, I'm thinking somebody's just pulled up a chair to sit down and think, right, I need to wait for this experiment to, to finish or uh, I need to... <laughs> sit here for a while before I go elsewhere because CERN is also a massive um, place isn't it it's not mm -hmm. it's not it's small. very large yeah. no 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 it's, it's definitely not small I mean sometimes we, we tell the people that it's like a, like a small village and, yeah. and and somehow it is and also you have like the big ring of the LHC and you know it's 27 kilometers it's very large and in each of the points where we have an experiment or where we have like um, the cooling system or stuff like that, there are also some buildings as well in that point. So we have a lot of places. Chairs to hang out. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> you feel sorry for them sometimes, especially if there's one just underneath the tree. I mean, how did that get there? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody put it there and spend the winter there. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. I don't know. We'll have to get a support group for them at some point. And <laughs> support group of chairs. Uh, so anyway, Rebecca, it's been it's been lovely speaking to you. Um, you've got to go off now and do some high energy physics, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> I will, yeah. And, um, but it's been great speaking to you. Um, and yeah, please do stay in contact. I'll put in the uh, the lonely chairs um, link into into the blog um, into the podcast. But uh, thank you for coming on and thank you for sharing your experiences. Um, as a, as a woman in STEM and as also as a leader in STEM. Um, hopefully other people listening to the podcast will take something from it. So um, I thank you for that. No, th thanks to you. It was really nice. And I, I think that uh, you're working towards things that are good and I, I'm happy to, to participate in here. So thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. bye. So yes, hello. Thank you for getting this far in the podcast. I'm really happy um, you listened to the end. Uh, if you have listened to the end, this is just the normal begging segment I put at the end of the podcast, asking you to share to your social media networks. Um, a like is great. A share is much better. Um, by sharing, I can grow my audience. I can get more people engaged. Uh, we can get more people listen to the podcast and maybe taking something from the experiences um, of women in STEM that we hear um, maybe sometimes they're motivating or inspiring for somebody else to maybe step up, step up and take that uh, challenge to, to be a leader uh, in STEM so again thank you very much for li listening and if you could share that po this podcast that would be great thanks